Okay. Well, this is this is Michelle Padilla, and I am talking today to Sarah Lombard of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and where she is the di- senior digital curator, and she's going to talk to us today about what the digital curator is and her thoughts of about museums and their websites. So let's start out, Sarah, with just tell us a little bit about your background and exactly what a digital curator does. Okay. So my background, um, I am native from D.C. I didn't mean to stay here, but I did. Uh, and then um, I think it's important to know in my background that, and I didn't realize this until answering this question, so I have regularly played team sports or team activities, and the two that I wanted to point out were um, soccer, and then chamber music. And I point them out because there are two places where you, everybody kind of knows what the end game is, and everyone has a role, but there's not someone telling you what to do. It's sort of it's improvisational in nature. Like in soccer, you all get on the field, you know, if you're a midfielder or a defense, but you know, sometimes people in the defense playing defense end up scoring a goal. And then if you play chamber music, it's no one's conducting. There's not someone in front of you telling you what to do. It's, it's a quartet or a quintet. You get actually as large as eight people, which I haven't done, and that's really hard to do. That people are playing together and bringing their talents. And different people lead at different times. And it's all about interpreting the subject matter and understanding where you stand with that. Uh, and I bring that up because when we talk about the digital digital curation, um, there are a few things that go on there. The role of the digital curator is to think about and envision the digital experience for the institution. So how do we want to be experienced in the digital sphere, whatever that may be, the website, social media, Vine. Um, we could go on, right? Uh, Wikipedia, TripAdvisor. All day. (laughs) Yes, we go on all day. And and there are parts of that that we control, and there are parts of that that we play in. And digital is this wonderful evolving medium in which our role and how much we can control and and are we the leader, like we are on our own, on our own website with the leader, right? Like we build the whole thing, but then you decide to put something out on Twitter and people might do something with it or people put your own stuff on Twitter. Like your stuff goes everywhere. And you need to be ready to play with that and not afraid of it. And that's part of the senior digital curator's role, especially in museums, of thinking about that presence and really knowing what our voice is and kind of the attitude we want to take to digital. Because um, digital can be kind of terrifying to people who've been in what has felt like a very safe brick-and-mortar existence. Uh, In my particular role, I look at the digital experience in the museum in terms of how we um, accompany or support some of the exhibition experiences for people who are museum visitors. And then in the digital realm, I'm looking at how do we work with the general public, with educators, secondary school teachers, um, college faculty and college students, and then advanced Holocaust scholars and policymakers. Those are our different audiences that I think about. 
interesting, and I like your um, how, comparing it to sports. Um, personally, I'm not into sports, but that was a really interesting way to look at um, at, a, at digital being a team sport because it truly is something that it, you can't do it in a vacuum. It's just not possible. You have to be able to work with others. Um, so going on to question number two is how did your experience at Newsworthy Innovations, which is NPR, um, which I thought was a fascinating part of your background, how did that lead you to your role in digital curation in a museum? Um, well, it, how did it, well, it, it led me here because a friend said have coffee with a friend and then they said, hey, we've got this job, you should apply, and, and I did, and wow, here I am. Um, but that's what, that's the mechanics of how it happened. I was um, I didn't realize I knew I wanted to get away from the 24-hour news cycle. Done with that. Um, it didn't mean I wanted to leave content. It didn't mean I wanted to leave creating digital experiences. It didn't mean I wanted to leave digital storytelling. It just meant I didn't want to have to care about having, doing one thing, and then suddenly there's a bombing in Boston, which is really important, and then everything goes over there. So there's a real challenge in news organizations of balancing the long-term thinking and then having short-term events that are really important kind of take over. And that happens everywhere, but really that's what news organizations are built for. Mm -hmm. So that... Um, that's part of really how it, it led me and in terms of why people from different news and media organizations are looking at museums and museums are looking at them is um, around the focus on storytelling, um, the, folk, the appreciation that content matters, the need for accuracy, journalism, ethics, um, and for a really good news organization, the um, focus on the audience. How do you tell the story so that it resonates with your audience? And then, in the case of NPR, uh, NPR's mission around creating an informed society, and then the um, Holocaust Memorial Museum is really about um, we're looking to bolster the structure of society to ensure that you know, genocide never happens again. So missions are kind of aligned. Yeah. Um, and did your experience at NPR kind of inform what you're going, what you're you're doing, and what you will do at the Holocaust Museum? Yeah, I mean we're doing. Digital, yeah, I mean absolutely, we're doing digital storytelling and yeah. digital product development, and every single company does that. Museums are no different. I understand that museums think that they are special little jewels, um, <laughs> and they don't have problems that anybody else has. They deal with people. They have the same problems hotels have. People want to know where to find the bathroom. People want yeah. to know when to open. People want to be able to find you. People want to know where restaurants are nearby. Um, so museums have, by understanding that museums, news organizations, um, and others, we're all, we are in the business, HBO, we're competing for people's time. It's the most precious thing you have. It's the most precious thing I have. No one can give your time back to you. So every single minute someone spends with you is a gift, and it should be treated like that. Um, so, I mean, that's what museums, that's what we all have to learn from, from each other. 
Okay. Well, that was kind of covers my next question. Was what do you think museums? Do you think museums have anything to learn from news websites? So you just kind of covered that a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean, storytelling and pacing. Museums, we seem to think that we can do three-year projects. Mm -hmm. um, and first off, tech, the nature of digital storytelling changes over the course of three years. I mean, you can go across the web and look and see sort of the roadkill in the storytelling, on the storytelling road to nirvana. Um, so it's pacing. How do we tell stories more quickly? How do we evolve? And some news organizations have done that well. Um, and news organizations are being forced to do that, especially if you're looking at traditional news organizations like the Post or the New York Times. And then you have organizations that nobody thought were traditional, like Slate, which has always been on digital. And they're evolving. They've created a pretty vibrant podcast business. So they've gotten out of text only. They also do video. Um, and they're looking at how does their storytelling expand to new places so, and partnerships. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. I absolutely agree. <laughs> um, number four, next question, what do you think are the greatest strengths of museum websites and their weaknesses as well? Coming from your, back, your news background, what, how do you see them? I mean, the greatest strength of a museum um, is its mission and its focus. And when it can keep that front and center, um, and how do we take all of these great tools, be they, hold on, there we go. Um, how do we take these great tools, be they uh, either a website or interactive digital panels, not because they're cool, how do we take them to serve our audience and tell the stories and deliver on the mission that we've decided is our mission? which in our um, particular world is how do we get people to think, um, to question, and to care, and then ultimately to act and to become um, actors for good in society. So how do you, how do, you do that? Um, so that's, that's the strength. I think the challenge that museums have in the digital world are two things. One, um, to try to replicate the museum online. and and truly replicate it, which is a real challenge, right? It's like you read a great book and you think it's wonderful and someone turns it into a movie. Like, oh, the movie wasn't like the book. Yeah. Like, right, because it was a movie. And movies and books, they can't be the same thing because a movie is one medium, a book is another medium. Yeah. And then we have to embrace both of those. And in some cases, a movie can be very different from the book and have the exact same impact. Like it was the perfect rendition of the book, embracing a whole new medium, and yet it was entirely different. Subplot stripped out, all sorts of things moved. And here, at least, there have been people who've been like, well, you could put that on the web. I'm like, the web is not a dumping ground. Stuff that you rejected does not go on the web. It doesn't go. It goes somewhere. Like, I, I don't want it. Um, so, but that's a weakness that every organization has. Uh, in terms of, well, I just want to be myself on the web and do everything the way I do already. Uh, and understanding that our digital presence is something that has to be treated with the same love and care as our curated exhibits. Different talents, different ways we're going to tell the same stories or address the same themes. But it's all going to be different. And at least in the 
for many museums, this is this is something that is slowly dawning on all of us. Um, and so that really trying to replicate a museum online, that's definitely a weakness. The greatest strength that museums have is that they're enduring. So much of the work that a museum does when it puts it online, it'll be used for a year or two. And that's so different from media sites. They're just like, oh, God, I'm going to put this up, and people are going to read it for day, two days, and then it's done. Um, the museums have a luxury and a reason that they can invest more in storytelling and get more out of it than some um, media websites. So just to make sure I understand correctly, you said that um, one of the challenges is replicating museums online, the physical museums. And you think they sh websites digital should or should not? They can't. Yes. OK. They can't. They cannot. Okay. It's a website. It is not a building. It's a website. And um, I okay. think also websites are websites, digital, digital, and the question of how do you, what's your overall digital footprint? Yeah. And museums need to look at all of that and not separate out their social from their website. Okay. Um, when you came on board to the Holocaust Museum, did they have a digital vision and strategy? Um, and if so, did you make any changes to it? If not, what may have you have you created a vision and strategy? Yeah, so um, there wasn't a vision. Um, what the museum had done really in the first phase of their digital presence was really experiment with lots of things. And the museum did a great job of, okay, if we all remember Second Life, it was a long time ago. But the museum <laughs> We'll experiment with Second Life, and we, you know we'll experiment with Facebook, and we'll get on Twitter, and we sort of the museum was really good about whatever digital thing is out there. Let's just go ahead and like work with it, um, and like okay, this digital thing we're serving you know somewhere between you know 800 and 1.7 million people a month. And we've been doing a lot of experimentation and innovation. That's great. It's time to take all this experimentation and innovation that's been happening in many different parts of the institution and put it in one place. Mm -hmm. So let's, 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 if we're good this way, what would happen if we actually consolidated everybody and put all the digital people together and then had them think about where they're going and why they're going there and provide us with the digital vision, strategies to get there. Um, and create the team that can take us there and start making digital decisions so that we're investing in the things that will have the greatest impact for our audiences and for the institution. So this is really the second phase. There was a whole, let's embrace digital, let's try things out, let's not be afraid. And then like, oh, we're not afraid. This is pretty good. Now let's put everybody together. So um, so, so great, Sarah. Come in, and what's your vision? And, um, and then how are you going to make it happen? And that was probably the first. Six, months, six to eight months of getting to know the institution and then um, really crafting a vision that people could get behind and then the budget to go with it and now staffing up and hiring people. Good. So that, that, yeah, so no, no vision strategy, but a lot of really good work and heading in the right direction. Okay. Um, do you see now or in the near future digital trends? You mentioned a lot of experimentation. 
um, that the museum has done a lot of experimentation. So do you see any, any digital trends now that, that are going on that the Holocaust Museum is taking part in and that you think museums should invest in in general? Well, in general, I think museums should invest in um, some uh, product development principles, um, namely minimal viable product, uh, which is a really good way of not overbuilding and kind of checking yourself on, on what the solutions, what problems are you trying to solve, what does the solution look like, and how you know when you've solved it, and not building beyond that concept. Um, and a lot of museums have already embraced um, different practices around agile project, um, project management, which has been really, really good. And then um, other trends, you know, continuing you know, to play with what's out there to see what might work. I mean, we haven't played much with Periscope or Snapchat, a little bit with Vine, um, but whatever's out there to see what can we do here it might make sense, and then if it doesn't make sense, then stop doing it. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that would be the biggest thing I would say with museums is to, you know, to experiment and also think about why, what problem are you trying to solve and for which audiences, because uh, you can't do everything, but that's, you know, that's true for everybody. Uh, but that would be the biggest thing I would say is, you know, try new things and then, um, and then figure out how to support them once they're successful. All right. Um, good answer, actually. Um, okay, so you head up the digital learning department mm -hmm. at the Holocaust Museum. Um, do you think digital learning, there are any advantages to digital learning over more traditional in-class, in-person learning? And if so, what, what do you think those advantages are? Well, I mean, I think digital is great because it reaches so many people. Um, and so when I want to know something and become more informed, I can go all these different places. I can go to the Holocaust website. I can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to look at art. I can go to Wikipedia. I can go to TED Talks. Maybe I can find an expert on YouTube. Um, so I think that, this, that that part of digital learning is great. The challenge I think that everyone's trying to figure out is, that's great for me being informed, but then where do I have those in-depth conversations of knowledge sharing? So how do you add, how do you add that element in? Um, especially for us when we're looking at the questions that they're talking about, you know, what would you do, and and what is complicity uh, during the time of the Holocaust when neighbors made interesting decisions? about um, their Jewish neighbors or their Polish neighbors, depending on what country you're in. So I think that you know, digital learning is great for expanding what we know. The question about, and, and it does it beautifully, and, and people become more informed, and we know so much more about different things, right? And we can, it's like having something even better than the world book on your <laughs> library shelf. Um, but then that other part of like, critical thinking and learning that when a friend or um, a teacher asks you a question, really asks you to think and prods and sort of forces you to think more diligently um, and to, to really grapple with difficult questions and doesn't let you walk away from the difficult question, that's really hard. 
Um, and I think that universities have figured that out. Like when you're taking a class, and you're going to get a grade, and you have to do that. But when you look at digital learning and the sort of more, we're looking to provide provocative questions to everybody. That that part's really hard. I think it's hidden. Uh, no, that's interesting. And the Somewhere Neighbors online exhibition actually came up in some of our class discussions. Did you were you part of that or was that created? No, no that was done way before I got here. Okay. Okay. That was ex I mean I was going through it and it was extremely powerful. Very powerful. Um, and I passed it on to some friends who have some interest in World War II history and they were very moved. Um, that's okay. great. So because many people from different walks of life and demographics have access to digital learning, what are your thoughts on how to best frame the content to have an impact on that wide range of people who are using these digital pieces, digital content? You know, you've got people who are fourth, fifth, sixth graders, and then you've got adults with, who may have some prior knowledge about this. So how do you frame your content to make it accessible to as broad of a range of people as possible? Um, you can't make everybody happy. So what we've done, <laughs> I think everybody knows that. Now, a woman here has a great sticker on her, um, she took it down, but it said something like, pleasing everybody is the equivalent to beige. Um, <laughs> So you can't have an impact on everybody. Mm -hmm. We are choosing our audiences and for different sections of um, our website and our social audience outreach, we are thinking about who those people are. And like if you're a fourth grader or a sixth grader, we are not for you. We don't write to your readability level. We're not talking about concepts that are that you can grasp. We are not for you. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be for the eighth grader and then the general public. So with a readability level, so thinking about what your readability level is, sometimes we write stuff that's very, that assumes that people know a lot. There's no reason to assume that you or I know a whole lot. Mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes we write things really targeting the academic. The academic is not our target audience online, um, except in very specific cases. But generally speaking, we're going for secondary school teachers and educators and the general public. And we think that if we achieve our goal with the secondary school audience, so think high school for the most part, but also seventh and eighth grade, um, then we will have met the needs of most of your general public. So those of us who, who want to know, you know, who was Hitler or what was Crystal Notch and why did it matter, there's an eighth grader looking for that, there's a college student, and then there's a member of your general public who frankly might be in Japan, who somehow that came up maybe in a book she was reading or something, and they want to find out what, what is that. And that's being available and accessible to them um, in terms of language, knowing that that was our audience. It wasn't the graduate student studying Holocaust studies. That's not mm -hmm. that's not our audience to answer that question. Okay. Do you ever do scholarly pieces? 
or we do we have sections of the site that are for scholarly research. Um, our artifact search is definitely for scholars. Um, it's really hard to use if you're not a scholar, by the way. I think that that's a mistake, and we'll probably address that in the next 18 months. Because um, there are people, too, and just because they know how to use difficult search engines doesn't mean that you have to make your search difficult. Yeah. Yeah, and, so, and then we do have um, elements in our Holocaust encyclopedia that are definitely for Holocaust scholars, and that's, you know, that's fine. But they're the only ones who are ever going to search on such precise terms that they're going to come up with a very detailed academic article. Okay. And I know within the museum you've got the Daniel story, which is for younger children. So do you yeah. have any plans to create something for younger children? On, on the web? No. Um, you have Daniel's story in the actual museum, which is for younger Yes, kids? but we will not be creating an equivalent of that on the web. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. One of my classmates asked, about Serendipity Day. She said, while you were at NPR, you instituted Serendipity Day. What outcomes came about because of it? And do you envision implementing anything similar at the Holocaust Museum? So when we started Serendipity Day, it was in part reaction to someone saying, um, we were doing um, agile product development, and we're on pretty tight two-week cycles. And a member of our team said, you know, I want to get off the hamster wheel. I'm tired of the two-week hamster wheel. I want to just get off and think. I'm like, okay, well, what would that look like? We really So when we proposed Serendipity Day to our boss, it's like, okay, well, what does success look like? Question that I very much appreciate. And we said staff, satisfaction, trust, happiness, joy, all internal metrics. Like we're doing this for us, and all of that came about um, when I left. We were on the 11th one, I think, and oh, wow. three more have happened since then. Um, and but other things came apart about from it because people would use that day to wrestle with questions that were you know like tickling their brain. What would this be like? And they would get other friends with them. Like, I want to answer this question. I want to try to figure out what this might look like. Be it um, what what did someone do? There was some kind of Google TV app that somebody built. How would you experience? Um, was that you? It is. I'm trying to figure. I don't know how to mute this thing. Okay. There we go. That works. Um, um, we had people who felt like verbally they couldn't share this vision they were having, and they wanted other people to think about this question that they were trying to answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a really good place to show that. Um, the first time we saw what the site might look like with responsive design. Um, we'll wait for them to go to voice now. Um,
go. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, so yeah, so people would use it to tackle different questions um, or like to read a book that they thought would make them better. And that was really, our, our rules for that were it has to be something related to NPR and you can make that pretty broad. Um, so reading a book, one guy was like, I'm really bad at time management. I get myself stressed out. So he tried all these different time management techniques. Um, and in terms of impact that was experienced outside of the institution, I mean, happier teams make better experiences, but also mm -hmm. we would reorganize what our product roadmap was. When someone would say, you know, this is what I'm thinking for this, like, oh, we get it. Like, that's, let's move that up. Let's, let's, let's change the order in which we're working on things. Uh, but it was a great program, and uh, yes. I do hope that once this team is settled here at uh, the Holocaust Memorial Museum that we'll be doing something different but similar. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what do you hope for the Holocaust Museum to, to develop? Are you looking for similar outcomes or are you, would you be looking for something different? I want boldness. Um, I feel like what I've observed is uh, pushing people outside of their comfort days. So it would be like the day of discomfort, which I don't know if anyone signed up for. Um, but the idea that we are, well, the museum would never do that. I hear that a lot. The museum would never do that. Would never do that. Mm -hmm. well, what would they do? Because I don't think we mean the museum doesn't want people to experience the museum using their phone inside the exhibit. I don't think that's true. I think the exhibitions team has really looked at how to make something so much like blend with their visual language so that nothing stands out, mm -hmm. which means if you have little cues that you can find more information, um, nobody sees it because it's so blended in. Uh, it's stunningly so. I was looking for these cues the other day. I couldn't find them, and I knew that they existed. So I would really like to get us to innovate and to experiment with things that really make us uncomfortable and make us think. Okay. Yeah. So Sarah's day of discomfort, which is not going to make me popular. Uh, but we'll find something where people will want to take a step back. Do you think Serendipity Day at the Holocaust Museum will encompass people out it will include people outside of your department, or will it just be your department only? Oh, I don't think outside of the department. At um, okay. NPR, it certainly was people outside of digital. We had people occasionally from different radio programs, uh, people from the library. Um, yeah, so a variety of different people would join. And sometimes people on the digital team like, I got too much work to do, and I'm really excited. Like, for me, what I'm working on is creating serendipity, so I don't want to do this today. Okay. Great. No, I was asking that based on your example because it sounded like that would include people from other areas besides yours. None of, um, my, none of my projects involve only people from my department. Okay. So every single project we're working on right now pulls in people from different departments because digital isn't its own thing. It's really, it's the expression of the museum in the digital sphere 
And that means that all those people that built things for the museum, they have to come along. Like, how do we do this to, to impart that knowledge or those thoughts or provoke that, that, that experience, but in a different place? Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. We're coming to the end. So I have any parting thoughts or anything that you in particular would like to throw out there for the rest of the class? Yes. I want you all to be bold in what you do. The audiences that we serve deserve it. Don't be safe. That is my parting thought for you guys. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's a good question too. Thank you for asking me that. <laughs> well, there's so many things I'd want to ask you that I felt like we were going, we could be going literally on all day. So I wanted to. I needed to end it somewhere. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you so much, and I appreciate your time. And we'll be in touch. Okay. Well, thank you so much for including me in your list, and um, you stay in touch, Michelle. I will.